Once upon a time, I had a young mate, who occasionally behaved as if he'd grown old before he ought to have. But that was all right. Because he might have said he had a mate who'd done things in the wrong order too. And now, wisely or unwisely, it was hard to say. This man had taken a journey which would let him relinquish some premature responsibilities and be frivolous and youthful again. He might have said he knew someone who was trying to stitch the dreams he'd left frayed back into the tapestry, returning to hopes that had been passed over. No one had been able to say if he could pull it all back together eventually. But he was going to have a crack at it. Whatever the case, what I remember most keenly is the sound of cicadas in the trees as I stepped off the boat. Almost a rush of high-pitched noise, seething, pouring through the air. The warmth of the land wrapped me up in a welcoming hug. A scooter buzzed by, a dad with his two daughters on the back, all in bathing costumes, dripping wet. A dog barked, but its heart wasn't really in it. I began to walk, and I would do so for hours, along the coastline of a long peninsula, throughout the whole day with nothing more than a small backpack stuffed with not much. The rocks radiated heat and light, the breeze was redolent with the scent of herbs and pines, the surf lulled me along, shallow, serene sighing, which calmed my breath as well. Around lunchtime I squatted in the shade, and a family kindly gave me a cucumber and a tomato, which I dunked in seawater and ate as a simple, delicious salad. And then I kept following that peninsula. In the mid-afternoon, with the temperature around 30 degrees, I ran out of water. And I had no more tucker. There was nothing to be done. Keep going, I said to myself. Sooner or later you'll find what you need. In solitude you notice what you lack much less anyway. And summer is when everything must happen spontaneously, when all the moving parts operate in such a way that miracles may occur. That's often the case on another continent as well. So it was when that old man materialised and gave me a top-up of water and six figs I slurped it all down slowly, quietly, absolutely content. As night fell, I stretched out a sleeping bag on the sand and fell into dreams as the sea turned to a rich hue of purple. And in the morning I sat and wrote a letter to my young friend far away, knowing that at home it was winter, that he was in the middle term of his final school year, in a town that falls into the doldrums, smothered as it is beneath overcast skies. I didn't mean to make him feel that life was elsewhere, but I hoped to give him a whiff of summer's aromas, its flavours, its sensations, its freedom. He was smothered with cloud and fog then, and long dark hours, in the dull light of classrooms and libraries but someday the moment would come when the world would have the perfume of time and mint and minerals 
marine salt, nasturtium flowers, white wine, olive oil, pollen. I kept wandering all through that distant summer, in conversation with mates who were in fact not within shouting distance. Yet I hoped that when I came home they would say, We heard you calling. I snuck into narrow gorges to skinny dip. On a mountainside I almost burnt my eyeballs out on the great expanse of intense blue that was the Mediterranean at midday. Later I got attacked by a dog in a pomegranate orchard, and I laughed as the wounds healed. In the afternoons when the world was silent, all at siesta, I sang 80s pop songs aloud, tunes that now remind me of slate cliffs and goat's cheese and the perfume of the bark of cedars. I carried grapes and capsicums in my pockets. I washed my socks in springs that poured forth from the innards of mountains. I ate breakfasts on village balconies, cross-legged, giggling. Every day I wore the same T-shirt, which after weeks on hoof was burnt and stained with soot and grease and sweat. And I wore a straw hat that turned into a pile of chaff on my head by the time the walk was done. In pen, up my arms, I wrote poems that were long and laborious, that never finished and were washed off the next time I splashed around in the sea. All art is ephemeral. I might have said, but no one asked. I walked aware that somewhere I knew well, it was winter. Migrating birds would have wandered off to warmer climes as well, so the parks and reserves around my hometown must have been quieter. The mud-lined estuary might have sat silently, as if saddened by its disuse. I knew all too well it was a lonely time, that it could feel loveless, that you could get lost in the mist, that it was a season in which you missed the birds and old friends, even when you were 17 and sitting in a school library just waiting for the season to change. September was just around the corner. I remembered that well. Perhaps in some part of my mind it was still wintertime. So in the mornings, on the peninsula, on beaches of white sand and blue surf, as fire emerged from the earth, as I honed myself on hard rock and was toned by sulfuric sunlight, I kept far-off friends in mind and penned epistles, homeward bound, although most of them I never sent. I wrote another letter to my young friend and told him I'd be home soon. But of course I wasn't really home until it was summer again. Summer in that other hemisphere. We drank beer and swam late at night and told tall stories at all hours. But the letter had traversed the seasons, stained with fig juice and bleached by marine light. And I hoped the words carried with them a levity, a fragrance. Something that served as a reminder that the world does tilt and turn that there is always something to look forward to on planet Earth. I like to think that once upon a time a letter, a piece of literature, served its purpose, 
It opened up opportunities to be in several places at once, to see distant landscapes and belong with other people, and to remember cobbers in different circumstances. It cast a glow of summer in the cold, dark heart of the winter months, and it put a decorative element, an intimate pattern like the intricate lace of frost, over the vast expanse of that solar-seared peninsula where mountains met sea. It let the past exist with the present, let hints of future mornings glimmer late in the long night. Once upon a time, the cicadas were singing, enjoying their short stint in the sun, strumming ribbed membranes on their bodies, making that high-pitched, pulsing sound shrieking at however many decibels, looking for love. For years they'd been underground, but now, for no more than a few weeks, these creatures would enjoy a time of music, romance, panoramic views, the whole wide world. It must give them a sense of seasonality that is somehow rather different to ours. Or maybe it's similar. Just a whole lot more concentrated. Much more intense. Now, you hear. The frogs sing. Maybe they sing at such a pitch that the cicadas can hear them, buried though they are. Perhaps the frogs are telling stories for their subterranean friends. The train carriage is easily warm, even on the coldest days. I load up the little stove with a few chunks of cut eucalyptus, and within minutes the space starts to heat up. Often enough I wind up taking layers of clothing off, and on some ridiculous evenings I get the shack to such a temperature that I sit around in my undies reading, waiting for the logs to burn down. Sometimes in the afternoons I go outside and look at the train with its plume of smoke pouring out the chimney. On such occasions it's easy to imagine that it's a vehicle in motion, a carriage going somewhere, bolting through the bush like an absconding convict, 
racing through the bars of shadow the trees make and emerging into the sprays of sunlight that explode between them. It's no express service, to be sure, but a long-distance journey, one that might take several days, down to Patagonia, perhaps, or to Kinshasa, the heart of Africa, or across the Gobi Desert. But I've chosen not to have that sort of winter, yet again. It was once routine for me to go elsewhere in these months. It's not that I don't feel the pull of travel. It just panned out that I should be here again for another season. Slow. Immobile. Thinking. Listening. A few weeks back, I lay on the carpet in a friend's house. She lay parallel. We'd set up cushions in front of her fireplace for a fairly spontaneous heart-to-heart talk. Where will you be in ten years, she asked. And I gave what I fear was a fairly rote answer, not particularly inventive. I'll be writing still, I said, and hopefully I'll be still living in Tassie as well. When I thought about it later, I realised I might have said precisely that ten years ago. I was around Yosemite then, and working at a farm in central California. But I had the Tassie bush on my mind. A certain song had suddenly become the soundtrack to plans I had for a lengthy bushwalk in the island's central and western districts. A book I'd found in the farmhouse library had set off some new philosophies mostly about language and my relationship with other animals. I scribbled poetry, plotted out short fiction, and I was gradually dreaming up some off-grid existence under the exact mountain range where the train carriage sits. Strange to relate that it all landed this way. But perhaps it's just the case that I never demanded so very much from life. My friend had stacked her fireplace with wood too, great armfuls of it, but she fretted that she was going to get cold in the winter. She feared these months ahead. It was her first season without a partner here. A recent breakup had placed her in new circumstances, and I understood how the conditions of winter can seem treacherous. Almost compulsively she kept her wood stove well stoked. It was getting hot in the living room, but my friend still worried it would get cold overnight. As for her answer to the question, ten years from now, she had nothing much to say, guessed even less than me. But my son wants a Tesla, she said. He'll be twenty by then. How can I even begin to guess what it will be like to have an adult child, she asked. She was thinking aloud. An adult child getting about in an electric car. I sympathised and wondered if I'd not kept my dreams simple and self-contained so as not to put myself in that position, susceptible to the random nature of the future's unfolding. Yet the brutal, inevitable ignorance with which we approach the years ahead can't really be controlled. 
Perhaps it is just better to face it. To sit there by the fire and confess that there was no approach with which my friend or I could know that much about what the next ten winters would bring. Back here at the carriage, I imagine the train in motion this afternoon. I'm on tour again, through some golden landscape, some cool climate. We pass through a quiet valley. The inhabitants are at rest, and the train's whistle hoots a soothing cooey through the woods. A single note that sings of several sentiments. Melancholy, memories, desires, dreams. Out the window, as I'm passing through, I can see the scrappy, messy bowl of an abandoned nest in the bare branches of a deciduous tree. The main street of a bypassed village has the corner shop's windows shuttered and the signboard out the front is covered with faded words. Gutters are clogged with sodden leaves. Clouds which in summer were shaped like squid or unicorns are now big burdensome weights pressing down with force. Even if I had a destination, I think. I might feel as if I was going nowhere anyway. There's a paddock I sometimes visit in winter, not far from the highway, not far from the river. Birds throng around the clearing, plovers and cockatoos and rosellas. Wedge-tailed eagles appear with silent suddenness and rove the sodden field, eyes keenly trained for activity beneath them. And narky chooks dart about frantically, the Tasmanian native hen is flightless and stressed out, but it sprints fast on glamorous long legs and moves strategically as a team. A couple times a week a pack of humans uses the field. They too make curious, frenetic movement. They too hunt a specimen that bounds elusively across the grass. They are football players. They train under floodlights, which cast a confusion of shadows around each person. Heavy fog frequently covers the plains they play upon. Sometimes the turf has been thickly spread with frost, like butter on toast. Sometimes there are icicles in the grandstand's eaves, but still their game goes on. And Aussie rules football is unlike other balls. More oval than circular, with rounded edges, it bounces erratically like a being with its own volition. They say the sport was derived from an Aboriginal game 
Marnbrook, and it's easy to envision how it might have been invented by kangaroo hunters. The ball is a wallaby. It is a paddy melon. Hopping skittish and fast, looking for cover. Unlike hunting, football is a largely purposeless pursuit. And there is something funny about going to watch a horde of strangers in short shorts and colourful costumes as they pass their winter afternoons in futile battle, fussing and fighting over the plump red object they have designated as their prey. But perhaps it's the arbitrariness that lets me be a bit romantic about it. Like art, I guess. It's one of the many things the human species has conjured up to give our days and nights on earth together a greater depth of meaning. As with a lot of subjects, I like to add a poetic sheen to it. I grew up with this game. On Sunday mornings, I'd head up the hill to a frozen field. I'd skid and slide around, get a few kicks, almost invariably end up with a blood nose and bruised legs, and then Dad would buy me a pie and a can of cordial, a terrific 10am treat. I was scrawny, of course, a bit clumsy. My hair was styled into a bowl cut, and as it turned out, my eyesight was no good. But I like to think I was a tough little bugger, and I got the magic of the game, the majesty of its theatre. I very rarely scored a goal, but even still it was hard not to feel the crowd's thrill whenever they happened. The roar of approval, the elated cheers, the honking of car horns. And weirdly it was under 11's football that first let me encounter a sense of how time passes and subsequently an understanding of history. After one match, as I ate my pie and drank my passiona, I thought, we lost. But next week we will play again, have another crack. Not long after that is the grand final. And then we have the summer off, but the season will begin again. There will be more games. There will be more grand finals. Eventually it ends, for each of us. Each consecutive football season, like a turn of the corkscrew, digging us into the dirt. But perhaps that's where the beauty comes from. The impermanence of it all. And anyway, we're not there yet. I watch the players. Performers, every one of them. They don their eccentric outfits, run around like narkies, screech, clamour, chase the ritual object around the sacred arena, then later pull their costumes off, put on civilian clothes, and buy a beer from the canteen just like anyone. We're getting to the pointy end of the season where all the wins and losses are calculated and tabulated. Some teams will soon be eliminated from the competitions. And the women and men who lost the most often will kick off their boots and cool their heels. With a calm, sour sorrow I know well. A feeling of missing out, really. Because if you win, you get to share a great celebration with your mates. 
but only the very best teams get that sweet reward. Maybe as they watch from the sidelines with the rest of us mugs, they will notice, as I have, that the first waddles have begun blooming, around most of the footy grounds in my district at least. Jolly yellow cheerleaders beyond the boundary lines. And in the treetops, the white-faced herons have started grousing, with guttural calls like hungry bellies. They're doing laps, chasing one another, making space. It is August and the herons will begin to breed soon. Another season begins. It always does, just as others end. All beings, even seemingly immortal ones like herons and footballers, spiral towards a finale. It's often at this time of year, perched on a hard bench at a wind-blown sports ground, I instinctively think to myself, I know that when my time comes, I won't be ready for the season to end. One winter, in the midst of a quiet stretch of weeks in which I'd spent most days and nights on my own, I was interrupted by visitors. I heard their car rumbling up the dirt road towards me and braced myself. They'd been on their way to go camping, but the weather had turned, so they thought they might just drop in on me. I wasn't very well prepared for guests, not mentally. Not emotionally, not even in terms of provisions, really. But here they were, the tyres of their four-wheel drive, tearing up the moss that had grown over the gravel where visitors' cars get parked. A gaggle of cobbers stumbling out of the car doors and calling my name. Well, all winter long I'd let fairy wrens and thornbills and spiders come in. It seemed counterintuitive to send my mates packing now tempting as it was. I went to the shelves just inside the train carriage's back door and produced a set of motley glasses 
then grabbed a bottle of French wine. These friends of mine didn't mind a drink. Some of them had made their own wine before. One had even been a self-proclaimed sommelier for a time. And I wouldn't say he was picky, but he knew what he liked. So thankfully he was happy with the plonk I'd got my hands on. A vestige from a time in which we couldn't travel. When I'd gone and bought some wines from around the world to get a taste of different countries, at the very least. As we sipped at the dark juice, my sommelier friend quietly affirmed this idea. What we were drinking should taste like a certain place and time, to be savoured all the more when it's somewhere we could not go back to. The Loire Valley, another of the mob murmured, looking at the label on the bottle. I've seen it in the summer, in the middle of a canicule, a heat wave. The stones of the old churches were so hot I thought they might detonate like blocks of gunpowder. The paddocks all around were bleached. The grapes almost glowed with sunlight. I thought they too might explode. Soon afterwards they'd have been harvested. They expressed the flavours of the summer, capturing the bright light rippling on France's longest river, preserving the fragrance of those wild flowers and stone fruits that grow at that latitude, in that radiant heat. I don't know about that, another friend interjected. So the wine tastes of summer, you think, perhaps early autumn, when the fruit is harvested? But the flavours are full of shadows and mysteries, aren't they? Of those musty leaves, tannin-filled skins, of wood even. It doesn't have summer's blazing, brazen spirit. And look, she said, holding the last dregs of her glass up to the pale midday light before downing it. It's almost the colour of night. So my friends were all thinking aloud, making spurious and subjective tasting notes, as we do when we're drinking. We were all penned into the train carriage. Five of us squeezed into the odd selection of seating I have here, a rather finite amount of furniture. Glasses were balanced precariously all over the place. One I noticed had been positioned on one of the stacks of books, perhaps the most perilous of all of them. Voices overlapped. They'd been raised as soon as the wine had been sipped. Rather swiftly, I needed to retreat to my cellar, which is also the unheated cottage in which I sleep. Had to go and get another bottle. This one from northern Greece, made from a multisyllabic grape from which had seeped on its journey from vine to vat to bottle, the most saturated shade of purple I've ever seen in a drink. Another opinion now was ventured. When the summer ends, the cold and lack of light have signalled for the vines to go defunct for a while. The plant's metabolism slows. Enzymes move sluggishly through the intricate network within the roots and vines. It stops producing chlorophyll. The leaves change colour. There are fewer sugars to metabolise. Readying themselves to go dormant, then. The vines build up a store of carbohydrates, 
and stow them away in the woody bits of the plant, in the roots, the trunks, the cordons. And then they toss those papery leaves off altogether, let them get swept away in the breeze. There's less water in the vascular system of the plant, so the tissue within won't freeze. Starch, glucose, fructose, sucrose, they're there to protect the more delicate parts and help them overwinter. Come spring, about half the carbohydrates that have been cached during this kind of hibernation are set in motion to produce new roots and shoots. Eventually, this friend said, the next lot of fruit will come from these, won't they? So there's some late autumn, some winter in the wine as well. There has to be. Plants have a memory of the weather, someone else chimed in. Take a magnolia tree. It's fixed to flower in winter, a relic of its origins in the warmer parts of China and its relationships with the birds and insects there and the other species in the forests. The same is true of all trees and shrubs, all crops, grapevines included. They'll remember this year's bushfires across Europe, as our plants here recall recent cataclysms and keep the story close to them. The changing climate must put them in a state of confusion. The conversation that courses throughout the woods and fields, although unknown to us, must be all about the way conditions have changed, the temperature, the rainfall, the threat of fire, the human-induced violence. They're gossiping about us and wondering what else will be done, how we'll all adapt to the chaos caused by our carelessness. All the glasses had been filled to the brim with this purple elixir, but now that too was gone. It was early afternoon. I threw another log on the fire and went out to grab another bottle, this one from no further than a hilly district on the other side of our island. My visitors recognised it. Some knew the couple who grew the grapes, on a mountain slope where they let their vines come close together, tightly entwined hard to prune and pick. One of the pair was no longer with us. They'd passed away, perhaps between the vintage and its bottling. This sad reality in turn reminded us of stories we all shared, of those who choose a tricky craft and don't get through the welter of problems that this brings. We get stuck in a dark season of the soul, who don't get beyond that to see the best days of their artistic practice. At last, lofty opinions were silenced, for a moment at least. We raised a toast to those who feel alone in full houses, who traipse paddocks bereft of colour and can't picture how they'll soon be covered with wildflowers, to those who travel along Struggle Street when the mist and fog reduces visibility to almost nothing. We must give it our all, one of our party said. We must savour the full palate of flavours, tight acids, bitter tannins, sparkling sweetness. And, said another of us, we must remember that not all seasons are for growing or producing fruit. Some are for building strength or for staying dormant. 
for simply enduring. Some hard seasons you've just got to survive. So as I said, the sommelier went on. The wine we drink today doesn't just taste of that twisting valley west of Paris, where France recedes towards the ocean, nor of the fields adjacent to the Aegean Sea, a stone's throw from the monasteries of Mount Athos, nor indeed of the iron stone country not far from here, where friends of ours have helped the vines curl into curious shapes to produce the most ebullient fruit. No, he said. They all carry the flavours of a very distant country. The past. And of seasons to which we will never be able to return. There once was a woman who decided to learn to be alone when the winter set in. I suppose the thought was kind of forced upon her. The usual machinations of fate. Life thrusting her out on her own just as the season set in. But anyway, winter doesn't invite visitors or promote social frivolity. Even half the birds that she'd come to know and love had buggered off to Queensland, or Japan, or the bloody Arctic Circle. So yeah, she was on her own. But she'd heard you could turn loneliness into solitude if you could only suss out certain tricks of the trade. Skills that would make your own company, and only your own company, somehow bearable. So she went up to one of the huts on the mountain. The ones that are freely open for anyone to use, but only if you hoof it up, taking all your possessions and so on and so forth. So there was no one else up there. She took a basic kitchen set up, heaps of tea bags, tea light candles, and a self-help book. She arrived in the afternoon. The sun was out, but there was still an inch of ice on the windows, which were frozen to their sills. The cold all sealed up inside the hut as well. She had these possum fur mittens on, 
but her fingertips were numb and useless, so she couldn't turn the pages of her book. For dinner she had powdered soups that tasted like shavings of flour stirred into glue. For dessert she had peppermint tea. The candles on those first nights seemed never to burn down. The wax melted into translucent oil, and the little aluminium tubs were like those lacrimatories, tiny containers she'd seen in museums, relics from Roman times, which were supposed to fill up with tears. So the woman cried, and cried and cried and cried. It was so cold that she began to get afraid that the tears would freeze to the corners of her eyeballs, then fracture when they eventually melted, cutting her corneas or retinas up. So she started to admonish herself for being so sad. It was dangerous, she told herself. But sadness is a vengeful animal. It only gets more cross when you tell it off. It could sniff out her weakness, the woman thought. It was attacking her because it knew her fear. The self-help book said, In silence you will hear an inner voice. She meditated. Her inner voice seemed to say, I've got to get the fuck off this mountain. But the woman was stubborn. She waited out a week, which felt like it lasted longer than her previous relationship and that had taken up half her life. Those tea-like candles still burned on. There was fog inside the hut, like it was colder inside than out. She would watch the condensation come out of her mouth and pretend she was a dragon. So there was entertainment. Or she was reverting to a juvenile state. After a week, she was out of food, so she hiked back down to the car park and headed for the supermarket. When she returned to the hut, she was surprised to find that she'd pretty much only bought wine and chocolate. Ah well, she thought. She tore the cap off the bottle of wine and drank half of it quite quickly. In the morning, she noticed, the other half had frozen. At what temperature does alcohol freeze, she wondered. But actually, she didn't want to know. Now the rain set in. She felt like she was in a boat. The hut was a little skiff, she thought, though she didn't really know what a skiff was. She was floating on the sea. She was on a voyage to a distant island with golden sands. A man would find her washed ashore. It would be 30-plus degrees and the man would be in nothing more than a loincloth, a sort of leathern set of speedos, and a ceremonial necklace. He would be a prince. He would take her to the palace, and they would eat pineapples and watch the sunset. This was a good idea, the woman thought. This voyage? Good idea. She opened up the self-help book. It said, 
Do not give yourself over to fantasies. You must retain your grip on reality, no matter how brutal or cruel it might be. The woman looked out the window. Hard pellets of rain, like lead bullets, rattled the panes, occasionally mixed with shards of ice. She tried to melt the wine over her tea-like candles, which were still burning, eternal flames. This is boring, the woman thought. She went back to the island and streaked into the turquoise surf with her prince, the two of them going for a skinny dip on a private beach. The woman lasted another week in that hut. Another week of being a hermit in the mountains, wrapped in a sleeping bag for days on end, sucking on ice blocks of wine and breaking her teeth on chocolate. Another week trapped with her thoughts. As I said, she was stubborn, this woman. But she was also feeling hopelessly depressed after a fortnight on her own up there. And she didn't really feel like she was getting any better at solitude. Her resolve hadn't strengthened. She'd not fortified herself with this alone time. It wasn't like the self-help book had said. So she decided to pack it in. She gathered the pile of stuff she'd brought up, stuffed it in her backpack, and retreated down the escarpment back to her car. But as she walked, she wondered if she hadn't achieved something after all. The experience had been difficult, kind of pathetic, a bit alarming. But it had been hers, and hers alone. Somewhere within her now, she had a reservoir of memory that belonged only to her. It wasn't shared, not with anyone in real life anyway. It was a space in which she could let all her weirdness and misery and imagination stretch out. And when she got back amongst her friends, it wasn't like she had to account for it. She didn't have to explain it or edit it so that it could fit with the experiences of others. No. It was just hers. Make of it what she would. Probably she'd just laugh about it. To herself. And remember it as yet another moment in which she nearly went off the deep end. Another self-inflicted challenge. In a period of her life riddled with silly attempts to perfect herself. But that too was something she could own. A personal, idiosyncratic streak within her character. A story. Strange and amusing, and quite charming when you think about it. An attempt to meld into a fast-moving world with its many, ever-changing parts. When the woman got back to her car, she discovered that the battery was dead and that there was no mobile reception. <laughs>